Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Smith, how are you this evening? I'm great, and don't go anywhere. I have a scripture for you on this from the book of James that I think is appropriate. Awesome. James 1.12. So get out your Bibles, everyone. Hopefully you're already turned to, uh, from the Old Testament prophet to the New Testament writer the book of james is that is that in the new testament dr smith it is it is okay, thank you james chapter one <laughs> james chapter one verse 12 don't make me laugh blessed is the one who endures trials for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which god has prepared to those who love him and i know this should be a joy it should be all the things father said but at times in our day and age it can feel just managing our household can be a trial my wife and i just like all of you do our own budget and at times it does feel like a trial um but i would just echo everything that father said and it is not for the crowns of this world that we that we strive it is for that that crown of life which is also mentioned in the book of revelation that's what we strive for amen thank you dr smith amen hallelujah all right, are you ready to go, folks? So um, let's dive right in. Um, hopefully you do have your Bible, as Father Hezekiah said, and I wanna make sure you have it open to the book of James. We're gonna move around in the scripture, but let's start with uh, chapter one. This is how the letter begins. The letter or epistle of James, of St. James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, watch this, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Okay, that's the beginning. And from there, we move into the letter. Now, um, I want to resource you, not just with our discussion through the webinar, but also through notes. And so I hope that you're taking notes in your Bible, but the Institute has this published. And there's a ton of stuff that I probably won't get to in the outline, which is fine. It's there as reference. Um, as we dive in, let's remember what we're doing tonight is sacred scripture. And I want to give you a quote from the Catechism. I'm going to give you the paragraph number here. It's from the Catechism, paragraph uh, 132 to start with. And I want this to really set the tone for what we're doing in this series. Here's what it says in the Catechism 132. And it's quoting Dei Verbum, right, from the Second Vatican Council. Therefore, the study of the sacred page, and that's what sacred scripture is, every word of the Holy Bible is the sacred page. Therefore, the study 
of the sacred page should be, ought to be, the very soul of theology. There's a lot of theologizing that goes on out in the world. There are all sorts of theologians and experts on all kinds of things, but what Vatican II is telling us is that the kind of theology we ought to bring into our mind and into our heart begins and in some way ends with sacred scripture. Now, this does not make us biblicists or Bible fundamentalists, no. The catechism is going to talk about sacred tradition and sacred scripture, right? So it's this breath of truth that comes from God and is deposited to the apostles and then to the church that is sacred scripture and sacred tradition. However, Vatican II and the catechism does say in that paragraph that sacred scripture is the soul of theology. And what I always tell my seminarians, and I'm actually in my office tonight, right down the hall from where our graduate course is here, same words I tell them at the beginning of a course from Te Verbum is that if we take scripture out of our mind, out of our heart, and out of the study of theology, whether it's Christology, whether we're studying Humana Vitae, whether we're studying any number of questions, the immigration issue, we can go on and on and on, church history. If we take scripture out of that, we have taken the soul out of what we're doing. That's a pretty sobering warning then from the church, right? To always make sure that our theology, in other words, our thinking of God with the church is always rooted in sacred scripture, okay? Uh, one more paragraph, and that is from 136. So if you have a catechism with you, you can look it up now, but I'm just, just giving you this to start with. 136 says, God is the author of sacred scripture, as we know this, right? In the Institute, I take it for granted. But I, I sometimes teach in audiences where people don't know that. God is the author of sacred scripture because he inspired human authors. He acts in them. And by means of them, this is also right from Dei Verbum, about this interpenetration of the divine author and the human author. There's not a competition, right? It's like a symphony. The divine author is guarding and guiding and uh, implementing all that happens, right, from his mouth. But he uses these human instruments, like the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in our case, this mysterious figure of James. We're going to get into who he is, right? But whoever he is, right, we're going to give you some good facts on who this person is. But, you know, there is some mystery and some puzzles here. Um, St. Jerome had a different conclusion that uh, Kelly Anderson, who's a modern scripture writer, and she writes in the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture, points to, and a lot of other Catholic theologians point to. In other words, there's a little differentiation. St. Jerome says one person and other faithful Catholic scholars today say, well, probably not that solution. But here's the point. Regardless of whether it was St. Jerome's solution or whether it was another solution, it's known to God, and God inspired all the writers of Scripture. We have to keep that in mind, okay? All right, so let's dive in. Um, about this first verse, and we, we, this is where we started last week, and we got into problems. Uh, so uh, with the Lord at our side, I think we'll be fine tonight. Tonight, what I want to do is give you sort of a background and answer some critical questions. So we're not going to dive right into chapters one and two tonight. We're going to save really the, the crux of the letter for next week. What I want to do first is pave a very solid foundation for you. And there's some very interesting questions. Some of the things we're going to look at tonight include who is the author of this book? To whom was he writing? When was it written? And then what are some of the major themes? And we'll see how far we get along there. 
And uh, wherever we have to end, we'll pick it up right there next week. Okay. There's been various solutions as to who wrote this book. The first one that is um, not satisfying at all, but is very, very common, is that the author was, wait for it, big surprise here from the historical critical scholars, anonymous. We don't know who wrote it, right? Even though it's called the letter of James. In my notes, I name a number of scholars who take this approach. One, his name is Dale Allison. You don't need to know that name. He's a very significant scholar. He wrote like an 800-page commentary, part of which I reread for preparing this series. And in many ways, he's very erudite and very, really brilliant. But on this issue of, of authorship, of all things, I think he and many of the others really, really missed the mark. Um, when all the data that's out there is gathered together, we can say with confidence that this was indeed a known person, not an anonymous author. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds of why do people do that? There's a lot of ideology and there's a lot of um, skepticism behind that. It's the same thing with the Gospels, right? And so we, we, we've been down this road before. But what I want to suggest is that we can and indeed do know that this was a, a real eyewitness, a real person, not just some anonymous figure that was later called the book of James. Okay, so we've ruled out the first alternative that we don't know who wrote it, right? It's just name James somewhere after the fact. My friend Brent Petrie is also very good on this naming of the authors of the New Testament. He's got a book called, I'll put it up here for you, The Case for Jesus. It's not directly related to James, but Dr. Brent Petrie, um, oops, if I can spell here, is the author of that book. And he talks about how this whole notion of the anonymous gospels is a misnomer. And he spends a whole chapter clearing it up, does it nicely. So I'm going to sort of set aside further discussion on that. But let's talk about who the main contenders would be then among known Christians. Okay. The first one is James, son of Zebedee. Now that's also the person, as we know, who wrote the Gospel of John and the other Johannine writings. He's, uh, I should say, the brother of John, right? So we have two sons of Zebedee, right? We have John, son of Zebedee, and we have his brother James. So we're talking about the brother, I should say, of St. John the Evangelist. Now, he's an evangelist, he's a writer, and some people said, well, maybe this is who we're talking about. The problem with this particular choice of James, son of Zebedee, St. John the Evangelist's brother, is that we know he's martyred in 44 AD. And that's problematic because a lot of the issues in this particular letter seem to be coming from a couple of decades later. And for that, those reasons, we should set aside James, son of Zebedee. Now, let me come back to St. Jerome, good old St. Jerome, who, of course, translated the, the Vulgate and, of course, was the, one of the greatest scripture scholars in the early church. He suggested that it was this other New Testament James, James, son of Alphaeus. Now, uh, what about this one? It's got high pedigree from St. Jerome. And that, that would seem to be very, very persuasive. However, many modern Catholic scholars are hesitant, as much as we would like, to follow St. Jerome's conclusion on this. Uh, most people believe in Kelly Anderson. I've mentioned her several times, so let me give you her name. Kelly Anderson is a friend of mine. She teaches at St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, she's a very fine Catholic biblical scholar, and she wrote 
the commentary for something I know a lot of you use, the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. And she's really done her homework. So if you want some next step reading, I would highly recommend Kelly Anderson on the Epistle of James. But let me just give you a quote of what she says. Uh, very little is known about James, son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Lesser, um, beyond a few references to him in the New Testament. He's mentioned in Matthew chapter 10, where we get the list of the 12. He's mentioned in Mark chapter 3, Luke 6, and in the book of Acts. And it is this James, son of Alphaeus, or James the Lesser, that Jerome believed was the one responsible for this letter. In other words, not James, son of Zebedee, brother of St. John the uh, Apostle, but James, son of Alphaeus. Um, and she says, uh, Kelly Anderson says, he did so largely based upon a reference in a second century text that he came across. And that is known as the Gospel to the Hebrews. Now, this is not uh, the letter to the Hebrews. This is one of those uh, apocryphal texts. What does apocryphal mean? Uh, apocryphal uh, is a term that describes the uh, spurious writings that are after the death of the apostles and often called gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip. There's one named after Peter, the Gospel of Peter, and the Gospel to the Hebrews, among others. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene and the Gospel of Judas are also in there. But we can quickly set them aside as really having any real credibility compared with the New Testament documents because they don't have apostolic origins. And this confuses a lot of people because it's like, well, it's called the Gospel of Thomas. I thought Thomas was one of the 12. He is, but these documents come from the second or third or maybe even fourth century long after the apostles have died, right? So they, they don't come from the hand of the apostles and I'll let you know in a secret. They don't really even read like Gospels. Now, the Gospel of Thomas is a number of sayings, and some of them sound familiar. Others are a little strange. <clears throat> That's because they come from, and I know you guys are smarty pants, uh, so I'll put it up here, Gnostic circles, not so much Christian circles. Okay, so Jerome was looking at, at this apocryphal Gospel to the Hebrews, and it does mention that James, son of Alphaeus, was the author of the book that we're looking at this week and next. Um, however, there's a, a couple difficulties here. As much as we admire St. Jerome, it's possible any, any individual church father can err in a particular matter, right? They're not infallible. They're not under divine inspiration. So this is like Jerome's uh, conclusion here, but it doesn't mean even if he's um, incorrect about it, that, that doesn't shake any, anything. In fact, St. Jerome, uh, just as long as we brought him up, he did not want to include the Deuterocanonicals initially. The Deuterocanonicals are those seven books of the Old Testament, right? When he was translating the Bible, he had worked on, um, you know, the Old and New Testament, translating it into what was called the, uh, the Vulgate from the Old Latin. And he wasn't really sure about the books like Wisdom of Solomon and Sirach and Maccabees and so on. And he was kind of like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But the bishop, Augustine, wrote to him, and they corresponded in a letter, and Augustine said, no, 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 these belong in the canon, here's why. And Jerome, the priest, said, okay. So even a great, a great theologian like St. Jerome may, uh, despite his best efforts, have gotten this particular one wrong. Kelly Anderson and many others believe it's wrong 
because there's just not a lot of there there with regard to James, son of Alphaeus. She says, today, most scholars do not identify James, the brother of the Lord, as he's called in this, in this epistle with James, son of Alphaeus, on account of the lack of evidence of him in the New Testament. So in other words, it's not an open and shut case, right? But we know it's not James, son of Zebedee, because of his earlier death. And it's most likely, with all respect to Jerome, not this James, son of Alphaeus. So you're saying, I got you, Dr. Smith, but then who is the James who wrote it? Well, that's what we're going to answer. He's called James, the brother of the Lord. And the word brother, as I'm sure you probably also know, has a, a much more pliable uh, meaning or connotation in the first century world. The word is Adelphos. Adelphos, and it does mean brother. However, in the first century, this need not at all imply a sibling, but rather kin. Uh, we often say cousin, but it doesn't even need to be necessarily cousin the way we think of it, right? It could be a, a third cousin. It could be just an extended family member. But because the, of the nature of family in the first century, to say Adelphus brother simply meant part of Jesus's family, not necessarily immediate family, but simply part of his family. Now, Protestants will take that much more literally and say it was Jesus's sibling brother. And I, I think I would really express real caution on that obvious for obvious reasons. Um, what else do we know about this, um, this person, James, the brother of the Lord? Well, uh, let's turn to uh, Acts chapter 15. I want to show you something right here in Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at verse 13, Acts 15, 13. So this is obviously Luke's second volume, follow-up to his gospel. And in the book of Acts, chapter 15, he is mentioned. And here's what we read. And all the assembly kept silence, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they had related the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. It goes on. Um, let me find my verse here. Is it 21 I'm looking for? Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas among the brethren and wrote the following letter. The brethren, both of the apostles and the elders to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. I think I'm not finding what I'm looking for there, but we'll move on a little bit. St. Paul describes, we'll just set that, that passage aside for the moment. St. Paul describes uh, James as a stylos of the Jerusalem church, which means pillar. And this is a very important passage. And this reference I do have for you, apologies on the Acts. But in 1 Corinthians, let's turn over there. Paul is dealing with the resurrection in chapter 15. And Paul is going through this whole list of witnesses to the resurrection. Beginning in verse 3, for I delivered to you as a first importance of what I also received, Paul says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, uh, and to the twelve, and then to more than 500 at one time. And Paul says, uh, some of whom are still alive, like, hey, go check it out, go talk to them, right? I'm not going to give you 500 names. Go find them. They're still around, although some have died. 
And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And that's a very significant notation. In Galatians chapter 2, you don't need to turn to this one, but I just want to mention it. Chapter 2, verse 9 is where he calls them pillar of the Jerusalem church. And so we have the book of Acts. We have Paul in several different letters referring to this brother of the Lord who is one of the witnesses of the resurrection. Now, um, Eusebius is another very, very early important voice. Now we're beyond the New Testament itself, and we're looking at the early church. Eusebius was called the church's first historian, okay? And in the 300s, he refers to this James, the Bishop of Jerusalem, by the name James the Just. So he goes by the name James the Just, as well as James the brother of the Lord. And on the outline, I want to read to you what he says about him. It's a remarkable uh, testimony to this priest and bishop in Jerusalem. Um, and here's what he says. James, the brother of the Lord, who, as there were many of this name, was surnamed the just by all, by all who knew him. From the days of our Lord until now, received the government of the church with the apostles by which he's describing here his bishopric in Jerusalem. He alone was allowed to enter the sanctuary. That is a very interesting sentence because the sanctuary would have referred not to the early church, but to the temple. And how is it that a person who is not a Levite, and Jesus wasn't a Levite, very, very doubtful that this James was a Levite, but nevertheless, Eusebius, the church historian, says, was allowed to enter the sanctuary, as in the Holy of Holies. He went into the temple area. He was often found on his knees. Now we're getting really a character profile of our author. He is a deeply prayerful apostle, right? So that his knees, Eusebius says, became as hard as camels. I've seen camels' knees up close, and then they're not very pretty. It, because of his continual kneeling before the Lord. And then it goes on to talk a little bit about his martyrdom and uh, this James the Just um, at his martyrdom in the early 60s basically repeats what Jesus said on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So he goes down like Stephen as one in history who is in the same mold as it were of our Lord, someone whose total will is surrendered over to God. Okay. Josephus, uh, one of the early Jewish historians from the first century, this is in the notes, refers to the stoning of James the Just that I just mentioned. Sometimes people are upset that uh, Josephus doesn't say more about Jesus. It is what it is. So he says a lot about John the Baptist, and he says something about the Christian and Bishop of Jerusalem, whose name was James the Just, and describes it in very kind of um, in graphic detail. So I could go on, but I think the conclusion seems very, very sound. We can set aside the anonymous speculation. We can set aside James, the brother of John the fisherman. We can set aside this James the lesser or James, son of Alphaeus, and look to another James, not one of the circle of the 12, but yet one who was in the company of Jesus and, in fact, a blood, a blood relative of Jesus. Now, what about this business of being called an apostle? Um, Kelly Anderson says, indeed, he's, he's called an apostle 
um, by St. Paul, but we might want to nuance that a little bit because the term apostle really means those who were with Jesus, appointed by Jesus, and who were with them from his baptism all the way through his ministry that is death and resurrection. So that includes the 12, right? And it would also include in a more mystical way, St. Paul, who meets the risen Lord, okay? So obviously we've got the 12 and Paul as the apostles proper. But I think it's fair enough to call James an apostle, since the New Testament does, in sort of the more broader sense of a witness. He certainly is uh, an eyewitness as someone who would have known Jesus. He's the Bishop of Jerusalem. So it uses it more broadly, just like it uses the term apostle to describe Mary Magdalene, right? Uh, she's known in the church as the apostle to the apostles, the one who brings the good news back to Peter and John. Stand corrected. She's not called an apostle in the New Testament, but the early church referred to her as an apostle to the apostles. So I think that's the, the sense we could say maybe apostle with a small a, huh? Okay, now, so much for the author. We can rest assured now that this person was a known figure in the early church. He was the bishop of Jerusalem. He was a leading figure. He was a pillar, according to St. Paul. He died a martyr's death. He prayed. He was a blood relative of the Lord. And that's all that we really know about him in terms of pinpointing who he was. Now, who's he writing to? Well, let's go back to James and look at that verse, verse one again. And it tells us that he addresses this epistle to a particular audience. And that is to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So I just want to say a word about that. Uh, first, the dispersion is from a, a Greek word, diaspora. And so where we get our word dis, uh, dispersion in English, it's, we're talking here about in the Jewish context, how many of the um, Jews, even prior to Christ, were flung across the Mediterranean world. The first time we have a kind of an exile is all the way back in the 700s BC. In the 700s BC is really the first dispersion of Jews. Anybody remember what happened there? It was during the king of, time of King Hezekiah, and the Assyrians come in from the north. They invade northern Israel. They take, take hold of it. They didn't get Jerusalem, but they did get the northern chunk, and they made those surrender in the northern ten tribes. And they kind of lost their Jewish identity and become known later as Samaritans. So that's the first really, really early dispersion. The one most scholars look to is in the 500s, in 587 BC again, and that's the so-called exile to Babylon, right? Those are the first two big ones. But then after that come a number of other ones. And so we have Jewish communities all over the Mediterranean world. Where? Well, they're in Rome. They're in Egypt in places like Alexandria. They're across Asia Minor. In places like I visited in um, March, I was in Turkey uh, and visited Ephesus. Okay, so they're all over the place. Now, what's interesting is when you get these Jewish communities, what happens then when the apostles begin to spread the gospel? You guessed it. They go to these various places on missionary journeys. They go to eventually to Rome, right? They go to Alexandria. They go around the Mediterranean, right? And Paul, do you notice Paul would always say, he would first go into the synagogues. Why? Because that's his preliminary audience. It is true that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, but he always began with the Jewish people, and we should not forget that. And so in many ways, we can say the Holy Spirit sort of primed the pump 
all the way back in the BC period by establishing these Jewish colonies so that when the spread of the gospel came, it would catch fire quickly in all these various places because the first converts were all Jews, especially in Jerusalem, but even abroad. And then, of course, it spreads later in the first century into the second and third and so on among the Greeks. Thank God for that, right? Okay, so it's not addressed to any particular church like the book of Romans is, right? Or Corinthians, which we read just a moment ago. Uh, it's known as one of the Catholic epistles. You say, well, aren't they all Catholic? Well, here we mean Catholic with a small c as in universal or circulating. Uh, let me tell you what the uh, Catholic epistles are in the New Testament. They are First and Second Peter, First, Second, and Third John, the very small epistle of Jude. It's almost a divine email and the book of James, okay? Uh, in some ways, I was thinking about it um, coming in tonight, that James has a little bit of similarity, not only with those books I just mentioned, those Catholic epistles, but also with the book of Revelation. Uh, if you remember, chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation gives us uh, John's instructions to all the seven churches, right? But there they're named, right? Ephesus, Thyatira, Smyrna, and so on. Here he's not naming them. So we can say uh, that James is interested in getting this word out to Christians living abroad. And it probably did travel and circulate among other, uh, to various communities. What would happen is it would arrive by messenger, right, by Christian messenger. They would bring it to the bishop or the presbyter priest, who would then read it in front of the congregation. So it would then read aloud. All right, when was the book written? My argument would be following Kelly Anderson that it's probably prior to 70 AD. It doesn't really matter a lot, but what's interesting is because Eusebius talks about James being able to enter the temple, which is such a mysterious and bizarre but interesting thing to say, right, that we have this bishop who's able to, did he have such great uh, relationships with the, with the high priest or Jewish authorities? We don't really know, but he was had some sort of all-access card, you might say, to the temple. Well, if we're to take that seriously, then that had to be before 70 AD, because the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Okay, on the outline, I talk about what genre the book is. In this case, it's pretty straightforward. It's a letter, although we would simply call it a diaspora or circulating letter. Now, um, what I want to do next is sketch out for you as we get into the theology of this book, what are the major themes? And I want you to take some good notes on these, um, because as you continue to study the book, it's, I think, helpful to see what's going on in this letter overall, and its overall architecture. And I want to suggest that there are two major things to pay attention to in this letter. The first one is this notion of faith and works. It's really works. He's talking about works. And we're going to get into that. For many people, this is a, it's a kind of a debate, um, but it's a, it's a kind of a false debate. There's really no debate here. It's a debate, debate among uh, some Christians, Protestants and Catholics, as if there is a dividing line between St. Paul on one hand and James on the other. Um, and we'll get into this more, but the debate basically says that James is going to talk about works and how works save. 
And St. Paul, in a number of places, appears to say the opposite, right? You don't need the old law, put off the old law. That was simply our tutor, right? We're saved by grace. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, since we come to the now the title of our series, The Epistle of Straw, question mark, uh, why was it called an epistle of straw and who called it an epistle of straw? Well, it was called an epistle of straw by none other than Martin Luther. That's right. And one of the main reasons that he described wrongly this apostolic book of the New Testament, an epistle of straw, was because of some of what was going on in his own life and in his own separation, uh, not from the church, but from the papacy, right? He, he, wanted, he believed he was, he was going to critique and separate himself from the papists, right, but remaining within the church. He always thought that he was simply bringing about a, a restoration to the church. Well, that's not what happened, right? So he believed that the papists uh, were um, including this book and had included this book from the early church, but they had done so wrongly in his view. Well, why? Why would he say that? Well, he said so because as he studied the book, he saw this as um, works righteousness. What does that mean? That means earning your salvation, right? And he would say St. Paul's absolutely against it. So how can this be in the New Testament when Paul's talking about works, works, works? Aren't we trying to get away from that? That's Judaism, Martin Luther would say. Well, we're going to explain this. It'll probably be next week, so you're going to have to. I'm going to give you a little teaser here, but I'm going to show you that it is absolutely a false dichotomy. There is no distance. There's no contradiction between Paul and James once we correctly understand it. And I will make sure you understand it before the series is over. However, what James is talking about is what we might call saving faith that is brought about towards perfection through works. In other words, this is just the Catholic view, right? We're not saved by our works, but we're called to participate in Christ's love and in his grace, right? Through works that Christ has set up for us in advance to do. We're not earning our salvation. We're simply cooperating with the grace that he has instilled in us and in the gifts that he has given us to do our portion, right? To cooperate with him towards our salvation. St. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And one of the problems that Martin Luther's um, bad theology, just to be very blunt about it, has led to is what we might call an easy believism. And even some modern Protestants like Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a, a book where he ta- uh, called The Cost of Discipleship, where he says, there's no such thing as cheap grace. It may be cheap to us, but it costs, costs the father everything. It costs him his son. And that's exactly right. And so Martin Luther had kind of a skewed vision here. What James is talking about does not contradict St. Paul at all in his message of grace. Again, what we're going to see in this letter is that James is talking about actual saving faith is brought towards perfection as we cooperate with God through our works of charity. In no way does that mean we are earning our salvation. That's a heresy that the church has condemned called Pelagianism. Pelagianism, that we're somehow bringing about our salvation on our own merits, and that's not the case at all. But that was Martin Luther's 
kind of rationale there. And so when he did his translation, this is just a little bonus, not on the, uh, on the outline. When he did his translation into German in the 1500s, he excluded this book. He also took out the Deuterocanonicals, the ones we mentioned of the Old Testament, but he didn't know what to do with them. And poor Martin was a little bit paranoid, schizophrenic, so he put them in the back of his Bible, just in case the Lord would strike him, you know, don't want to take them out and put them to, so they put them as an appendix in the back. Um, and eventually they, they, they moved out of the Protestant Bible altogether, and that's where they've been ever since. They've been left on the cutting room floor for these theological dispositions. But the reason the book of James was accepted into the early church was because of the overwhelming criteria of which it met. It was written by an apostle. It was accepted everywhere from the very beginning of Christianity and embraced by all the bishops in all, and I mean all the churches, right? So Martin Luther's just patently wrong on that point. So watch this theme of works and try to understand as we move through it what James is getting at and why they are essential. And we'll also clarify how this does not in any way undercut St. Paul. And that's on the outline, page three. Okay. There's another major theme. Let's look at this text in James 1, verse 9. Uh, I think I have a typo here of where this is, and I, my apologies on that. But let me read you the text, and we'll get the, we'll get the citation to you later. But it's, always be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Okay? In the early part of James. And what I would suggest is that this text, always be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, in many ways gives us a threefold design of the letter. Here's what I mean. Let's take each one of these phrases at a time, because as these break open throughout this epistle, they remain important all the way through as kind of like guideposts as to what James is getting at. Let's take the first one. Always be quick to hear. Now, I've heard Protestants preach on this verse, and basically they mean being a friend to others, like stop talking, zip up. You know, that, that's part of it. But there's something more that James means when he says be quick to hear. This theme of listening saturates chapters one and two. But now the question we need to answer is, what does James mean by being quick to listen? It's not just being quick to listen to, to others. It's to be quick to listen to the Lord God and to his law. Now, James, of course, is a Jew. So would he mean the Torah? Well, in one sense, if you look down at verse 22 of chapter 1, I'll wait till you get there. He says this, be doers of the word and not hearers only, and so deceive yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who observes his natural face in a mirror. He's got some great metaphors, by the way, in this, in this book. For he observes himself and goes away and at once forget what he looks like. Well, how could one do that? When you say, that's, that's silly, it's ridiculous, forget your own reflection. But he says, that's what happens when we don't actually actualize and do the word. It's like we hear it, but we don't do it. And it's like forgetting our own face. But then he says in verse 25, but he who looks into the perfect law, now here we need to note, James does not mean the Torah, although in its own way it is perfect. He means the new law. 
that is the law of Jesus, right? What's the law of Jesus? The gospel, right? It's his life, death, and resurrection and ascension into heaven. It's his charisma, it's his word. But we see it in all of his teachings and the Beatitudes, right? It doesn't abolish the old, doesn't abolish the original Torah, but it lifts it up to a new level. He transfigures the law in his own person. That's what James is talking about. And when a person is in tune with God's word, not just in, in one ear and out the other, but really attuning themselves to it in their heart, living by it, right, by this new law, it's going to begin to transform their lives. Now, there are things going on in the Christian communities that James is disturbed about. And one of them is what he calls partiality. So look at chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on and gives an example, an illustration of a rich man who's welcomed in. Why? Because he comes in, he's got the gold rings, and people identify him. But then, as he talks about, a poor man comes in, and he's mistreated. The rich man comes in, they're like, sit here. Hey, take my seat. The poor man comes in, and no one pays a mind to him. This is more than just about caring for the poor, although it is that, right? It's about developing what James calls a theology of partiality, which means we begin to treat people based upon what we think they can do for us, or based upon the way the world sets them up as having some sort of prestige. But in the New Testament, not just in James, but in the New Testament, those divisions are eviscerated, right? Remember what Paul says? There is neither, neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male or female, right? Now, Paul's not blurring the line between men and women, but he's, what he's basically talking about is the kind of classes that we have need to be reconfigured so that each person has the dignity of Christ our Lord himself. Okay, now Paul says, I mean, James says there's two ways to do this. One is just try harder, right? But that's not what he says. He doesn't say just try harder. He says, be quick to listen. And what he wants us to be quick to listen to is the word of God. And the kind of listening that requires contemplation and stillness, meditating on the word of God. He wants us to chew and gnaw and feast on the word because he knows when we really do, and we give up playing games that really let it digest down into our, our heart, right? Go for the 18 inches from our head to our heart. We'll begin to act on it. We'll begin to love it. We'll begin to desire after it. And when we do, we'll begin to, it'll begin to shape our attitudes towards us so that those sort of actions that he described will become uh, less and less and less until they eventually evaporate. Well, the next part of that phrase, quick to listen and slow to speak. By the way, can I put Andy in the spot if you haven't found it? But do you know where that I, I somehow I, I lost my, my verse or where that's at, but maybe we can find it before the end here. There's a chapter one, verse 19. James 1, 19. Okay, so what about this business of being slow to speak? In chapter three, he's got a number of more instructions here that have to do, as we'll see, with the power of the tongue. How the tongue could be a beautiful gift in which we can lavish others with words of truth and beauty and goodness, or we can use it to tear others down, to tear others down. So when we get into chapter three, we should keep in mind this phrase, being slow to speak, by which he means, 
you know, not a bunch of rules like the Stoics and other had, right? But about asking for wisdom and repenting and getting rid of what he calls earthly speech. What is James getting at here? Why do our words matter so much? They matter because we can destroy the work of God in others, sometimes with a single word. What happens, according to James, when earthly speech, the kind that's lesser, not just base, not just foul language, I'm talking about gossip, I'm talking about that which does not seek to build up or operate out of charity, what happens when that replaces heavenly speech? Well, to borrow a line from that guy you may have heard of out there, Jordan Peterson, chaos happens. The lobster man is talking a lot about bringing order out of chaos. Well, James wants to talk about that in a divine sense, right? That he wants to help us reclaim our speech with Christ's help so that we will be conduits of grace and charity. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and every kind of evil practice. Now, a number of years ago when um, uh, Mayor Giuliani, mayor of New York, he developed this policy with uh, the police uh, called broken windows. And uh, the idea was very simple that the police should uh, really attend to small things. And by attending to small things, they see a broken window, they go and investigate, right? they would be more attentive to what's going on in the community. And sometimes those small misdemeanors would lead to greater crimes. There's a kind of a corollary here. I think that James is getting at, right? That we should not underestimate things like foul language and gossiping and backbiting and just kind of giving into the way that media tells us how to use words. And if you want a good, a bad example of that, just turn on any of the late night comics, right? Where they talk, they do their monologues, where they're talking about politics or whoever they're talking about, regardless, talking about human persons. And they often model what's very bad in our cultures as ways that we destroy others with our words. And so it's not just about having a, um, a clean mouth because we ought to, because we're Christians, although we ought. It's this whole idea that when we foster uh, disorder in our words, in some ways it can spread like an infection to our minds, to our thoughts, to our impulses. And, and what James wants to do is he wants to get right at the core, right? And so he says, we need to transform our speech and give all of our speech to Christ. Pray, let us pray that we develop more of a heavenly vocabulary and more of a charitable pattern of speech. Okay, the last thing he says in that 119 is that we should become slow to anger. So we've looked at be quick to listen and saw, see that that means much more than what it appears on the surface. Slow to speak is much more than just holding our tongue. It's really purifying our thoughts, right? So that we really do begin to work on the whole person, right? and conform that into the image of Christ with his help. And the third one, what's this business about being slow to anger? Well, look at chapter four, verse one. James says, what causes wars? And what causes fightings amongst you? Is it not your passions that are at war within your members? 
you desire and you do not have, so you kill. Brings back the image of Cain, right? Remember Cain in Genesis chapter 4? What was his deal? He's jealous of his brother. His brother worshiped God, brings forth a sacrificial lamb, his brother Abel. And Cain does not. And if you go back and look at that story, it'd be a great little homework assignment. You can see that God is actually, just like James, trying to redeem the man Cain. Go back and look at that story. God tells him, paraphrasing here, Cain, come wake up, get your act together, you know? But but Cain won't have it. Cain slays his brother. And in some ways, it all begins in his heart and in his mind with coveting and with jealousy. And in a similar way, James is saying, hey, don't take this stuff of wanting and not being able to have and wanting to grab something that's not yours. Don't take that lightly. Verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Unfaithful creatures, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So now he's bringing in another dimension of what kind of allegiances are we making? And I think that the big principle to see here is that how our whole being, right? And this is what James is, I think, good at. is helping us see our whole being before God, right? Not just thinking about the big sins, like what we call the mortal sins, right? But even our speech. My dad used to say, don't say something behind someone's back that you would not say to their face. Well, that's a pretty good start, right? But we should add to that what, what James is saying here. And so what James wants is not to give a bunch of rules, but really in a very, very simple way to call us to humility. He's calling us to humility. Look at verse 5. Or do you suppose, this is chapter 4, verse 5, or do you suppose that it is in vain that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives us more grace. He gives grace to the humble. And so Paul will say something very, very similar here about anger. In Romans, and I want to read this to you, um, but turn to Romans chapter 7 with me. Keep a finger at James. What's amazing is that for people, all the people who say there's this big distance between James and Paul, no, there's really not. So many of the things that James says, Paul says in very, very similar ways. Maybe he words it differently. But listen to this. We're in Romans now, chapter 7. Now think about what James just said here, right? About having our members at war within us, right? By which it means like our hands, our mouth, our ears, they're conflicted from one another, right? Here's what he says. Romans 7, verse 15, for I do not understand, Paul says, my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. It's like proving it, right? So then it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. Paul's going to say like James, we've got to pluck it out. We've got to ask the Lord to pluck it out. It's not so much that we're conflicted in ourselves. The Lord's made us to live in peace and simplicity before him. But it is that sin that has a hold in us. And whether it gets its roots down in just our language and our thoughts or in, in other ways, right? James and Paul are saying the same thing. We need to ask the Lord to root those things out of us again and again. Paul goes on. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. Wow, that's a sad 
statement, isn't it, of the Christian life? Billy Graham, rest in peace, once said, I don't have the capacity to live the Christian life. I need God to help me to do that. I can't do that on my own. And we need to stop fooling ourselves, but then we would be Pelagians, thinking, I'll just try it a bit harder. That's a good notion, but uh, I think the, the better, more proper theological notion is, Lord, save me. Lord, change me. Lord, change my speech patterns. Lord, change my heart. Paul says, for I do not do the good that I want. He wants to do the good, but I do the evil that I do not want to do. For I delight in the law of God in my innermost self, but I can see in my members, just like James, right? Another law, another law at war with the members of my mind, making me captive of sin. So Paul concludes, wretched man that I am, right? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Paul says, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's the point, right? So we don't want to misunderstand Paul or James at this point. Some could misunderstand this letter and say, yeah, works, James, go, do more, be more. That's not exactly quite it, right? It begins with an introspection, contemplation. Are you setting aside time? I'm talking to each of you now. Are you setting aside time regularly to do a little bit of an examination of your conscience? It can be very, very simple at the end of each night, right? Ask the Lord to bring to mind those images and interactions throughout your day. The more we do this, I think it's, and bring it to the Lord, the more he can help to summon up in us where there are parts of us that we need to confess to him, and fall upon his mercy, ask him to forgive him, forgive us, which he will, right? But it also calls to our mind as well, right? Those areas that we still are in need of being healed. So it's, it's not as much about doing as we would think, as much as it is allowing God to do it by allowing him to enter in. But the stubborn man says, nope, I don't need to do that, right? And that's the person that, that James is after. Not the person like you or I who stumbles and falls and asks the Lord to pick him up again. That's, that's really all of us. But it's the person who says, no, I don't need to change, and no, I don't need God's help. That's the kind of person that Paul and James are both saying in different ways. Hey, come on, let's take a look at this. So let me give you this very, very quickly. Ten more themes. I'm just going to name these for you quickly. And the point is not to dwell on them, but just to see how rich this letter is. Just listen to these and you find them on the outline. These are things we're going to cover next week. In addition to those major themes of faith and works and being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, listen to this. Number one, the value of suffering. He talks a lot about redemptive suffering. About doing and not just hearing. Number two, he gives biblical examples. He actually mentions Abraham. Rahab, he mentions Job and Elijah. So we've got some great examples to look at in the book of James. He talks about trust, growing in the trust of God. By the way, on my outline, I give you the specific verses so you can look up these themes and see them in the text. Uh, the next one, greed and amassing wealth. Uh, six, watchfulness to Christ's second coming. The seriousness of taking oaths. Again, so much what he says here is right out there at the service where we live every day, right? The, our words, our language, our choices. The seriousness of taking oaths, number, uh, number eight, the power of healing prayer. Number nine and ten, sacramentals. The anointing of the sick in chapter five and confession, the sacrament of confession also in chapter five. So 
there's a lot before us. And what we're going to do next week is start going through the book right at the top of the hour, chapter by chapter, so we can dive more into the meat that is this letter. I can't wait to get there. We've got a lot more to do. So please make sure you come back next week. We're going to begin right in chapter one and really do a hard, impactful, and very meaty walk through the book of James. And I can't wait. We're looking forward to it, Dr. Smith. Thank you. Uh, you know, it sounds silly. It's like sometimes you hear something like, why didn't I think of that? I got to tell you that idea of the daily examination in the evening, right? We've all heard it before, but speaking personally, I've never thought to ask our Lord for the assistance to bring those images from the day. I always just sort of rely on my own memory. I'm kind of playing through the day. Um, but what good advice to ask for his help in the areas that we really need. Thank you again, Dr. Smith. You're welcome. And Andy, if I can just 30 seconds, if it indulge me. One, I was just on a retreat and I had to do these things myself. And one of the things the retreat master talked about, as you were just mentioning, the examination of conscience, he said, it's not just not to call these things to mind, but bring those to the Lord. And he said, if you have a crucifix, I know it sounds a little odd at first, but I've begun doing this at least once a week. He said, once you've done your examine of conscience, look at that side of Christ, right? We tend to think of the side of Christ as the blood and water coming out in that direction. But he says that flow goes both ways. And what he went on to say, this is Dr. James Keating. He went on to say that if we take our examination of conscience and then hold the body of the Lord in our hand and press those needs and things to be healed into the side the Lord wants to take them up into his side, into his sacred heart. It's a very fascinating image I've never heard before. I've always thought about the side of Christ from John 19 with the blood and water. I've thought about the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist and his pouring out his mercy. I've never really thought about reversing the flow and asking the Lord to take our needs, our longings, our frailties, our sins, and he's waiting to, it's, it's leads directly to his heart. And it's a very, very tactile way of praying. And some of some of you might want to give that a thought or maybe even give it a try. I know I've just been doing this since my retreat, and it's been a very beautiful way to pray with the crucifix and to really do an examination of conscience in a, in a fresh way. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Smith. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.